next slide, please. Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of John, chapter 2, the, the second half of the chapter. I invite you to see the words on screen. Uh, they'll be online as well, or open a pew Bible to follow along if you'd like, or, or a device if you have one handy. I'll be reading from the New International Version, John 2, starting in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle. Okay, there we are. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Markets are pretty messy places. Now, I don't mean supermarkets like Glens in East Jordan or Charlevoix or Meyer, wherever you go. No, I'm thinking more like uh, Lao markets that I used to go to when my wife and I were missionaries in Laos. This is the market in Ponsavan, the town where we lived. And, and these markets, uh, yeah, these are not my own pictures, by the way. I got them from a website. But a Lao market is a place where you can get a, a little bit of everything. You, you see the hot peppers there in the front piled up. You could buy a, a whole bag full of hot peppers, more than you'd ever want to eat in a lifetime, for about 20 cents. And, and there were beans and greens piled high. Um, and the ladies, as you walked down the aisle, the ladies would call out, buy, come by and help from me, please. You could buy all these leafy greens for about a quarter, a pound, and, and the, the hard dirt underneath would be swept clean, and, but you still had to watch your step because sometimes there might be something slimy down there. And, and in the fish aisle, well, that's where it got really messy. In the fish aisle, there were these buckets and buckets or basins of fish, sometimes with bubblers in them to keep them alive, and you'd go down the way and you'd pick the fish that you wanted. I, I want this fish. Sure, that looks like a good one. They'd grab it out, still wiggling, and kill it for you on the spot if you want, or you could take it home live and kill it yourself. Uh, my wife, Sarah, had a little trouble with that one time early on. She wanted to uh, get a fish, and she didn't have the foresight or, or quite understand, uh, speak Lao well enough to ask them to kill it and clean it for her. So she took home two fish live in a plastic bag, and when she got home, she decided to, to kill them. But killing a fish is, is a little bit hard. You've know, you got to whack it pretty hard for it to die. And, and it was slimy and slippery, and she couldn't hold it well enough to kill it. So 
and Sarah, please forgive me for telling this story, she stuck it in the freezer. (laughs) She stuck that fish in the freezer and froze it to death. (laughs) And it worked, and then she could skin it, and it stayed nice and still, and we ate that fish, and it was good. You could get any kind of fish you wanted. You know, uh, we usually ate tilapia because they were the, the easiest to, to cook with or little small bony ones for making sauces or frying ones or, or maybe wriggling eels if that's your, your, your you like those, fine. Um, and they'd give it to you in a bag and, and, and fix it up for you if you wanted. But my favorite section was the fruit section and I don't even have a great picture of the fruit section but this is the, the local uh, Xingquang fruit section. There were uh, uh, wild chestnuts, uh, uh, or I think so, water chestnuts that they would sell, and these little hard uh, plums and peaches and uh, various different kinds of crab apples that they'd collect up in the mountains. And uh, in the, the imported fruit section, things that would come in from Vietnam and Thailand, there were mounds of mangoes and piles of papayas and those spiky little rambutans that you could eat and little lychees and really any kind of fruit that you want. And oh, so cheap. You could get a, a pound of imported fruit for 50 cents. I usually avoided the, the meat aisle, and I won't show you a picture of it because it was so messy and gross that uh, you, you really wouldn't want to go in there, and it stank. It stank of, of blood and of other things, too, and, and it was messy, and there were piles of fresh meat sitting on these tables, and the flies would come around, and they killed it in the morning, so hopefully if you went early enough, it was still good. But we never really bought meat from that aisle because we weren't quite sure we wanted to. Plus, you could get a, a live chicken all uh, tied up in a little basket or, or a whole pig in these special pig-shaped baskets, kind of like a, a cone, all ready to go. Markets, at least in Laos, and, and maybe in some places of the U.S., they can be pretty stinky, messy places. Now, take that idea of a market and, and put it here into Scripture. That's a bit closer to what Jesus is seeing. The, the, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem to the temple, he finds a messy, stinky, loud animal market, a place that is supposed to be holy. This place that's supposed to be set apart for God is suddenly a a messy, smelly, smelly market. And no wonder Jesus goes in and turns the tables. He's got to clean things out and make things right. And he acts this out as a sign. It's a sign that points to him. It points out the purpose of the temple, and it points to what Jesus will do in his body. Now, of course, it all goes down on a holiday weekend in Jerusalem, and every good Jew is supposed to go up to Jerusalem a couple times a year for these four main festivals, and Passover was one of them. Everyone was supposed to bring their own perfect, unblemished, live animal to the temple for sacrifice. If you were rich, you could bring a sheep. If you were poor, you'd bring two pigeons or doves. Uh, There were allowances made, but for those who lived far away, it was too risky to travel that far with an animal. What, What if it got attacked by wild animals on the way? What if it fell and broke its leg? Then it would no longer be perfect and unblemished. So people who lived far away could sell their animal, bring the money to the temple, and buy another animal to to sacrifice. That's why there was a market there. The the Jewish pilgrims who came from far away could buy a heifer or a sheep or some doves for the sacrifice. And when I was in Jerusalem, our our professors and guides told us that the most likely location for a market in Jerusalem would have been kind of right about in this place, outside of the temple walls, near one of the entrances from the city where people could go up into the temple. This is actually a picture of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, but it's near the corner where people would have entered from at that time. 
And there were, we know there were these vaulted stairs going up over uh, a road into the temple. And most likely the market sprung up underneath those vaulted stairs. Uh, people who were going to the temple needed to do two things. They needed to bring an animal and they needed to pay a tax, uh, a temple fee to support the ongoing worship of the temple. And those priests could not touch the unclean Roman foreign coins. No, people had to be paid, uh, pay the temple tax in Jewish coins, half a shekel. So that's why there were money changers outside the temple. And along with these animal sellers, the, these people, this market is there to serve the pilgrims who are coming from far away. Now Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And does he bring an animal carefully from Galilee with him? Or, or does he come to buy one from the market? We, we don't really know. Uh, John assumes that we know that Jesus is this faithful, observant Jew, that he does all the right things. He's from a good religious family from Nazareth. But uh, he probably did these pilgrimages and sacrifices his whole life. But something was different this time. Maybe it was the scale of the market. Maybe it had spread so big and it had gotten out of hand. Maybe it was the location. Maybe the market wasn't just outside the temple, but somehow had migrated into the temple courts. Or maybe it was the, the money changers. Maybe they were cheating people left and right out of their money. Uh, wh whatever it is, Jesus sees that the temple needs to be different. And this doesn't just happen on a whim. Jesus goes and makes a, a whip out of cords and he takes it and he drives out the animals and the sellers from the temple and he turns over the tables of the money changers and he scatters their coins and he has words with those dove sellers, the, the ones who catered to the very poorest of the poor. Get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And maybe those ones were taking advantage of the poor. Maybe they were mistreating those people who were desperate for something to sacrifice affordably. Whatever is happening, it is not right. And Jesus comes along and he, he shows his righteous anger to show us and them that it is not right. Now, some people have sometimes used this image of Jesus to, to justify all kinds of violence in Christ's name, and I don't think that is an appropriate use of this text, so I do want to warn you against that macho idea of Jesus who comes in and busts faces and overturns tables, because I don't think that's the point of what John is saying here. Je Jesus is pointing to his body as the point of things. Now, the, the other thing to notice here is that uh, our culture sometimes treats faith a bit like a marketplace. It, 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 that trend, I think, has accelerated in recent years. Uh, people, and I don't mean you, but maybe someone you know, maybe a relative or a friend, uh, people treat religion like this thing that you can choose off of a menu at McDonald's. Like, hey, I'll have a, a happy faith meal with a, a side of family-friendly radio and some inspirational quotes on my wall from the craft store. And the, the fastest growing religion in North America is people who call themselves Christians but never open a Bible, never go to church, never do anything that's like a, a Christian practice of discipleship and prayer and service. And these people, they tend to be uh, somewhat conservative in their mindset, longing for those good old days when there was prayer in school and everyone went to church on Sunday, but where are they when church is open? Their need for fellowship is met by that coffee clatch at the store. They're, uh, they're part of a, a political rally or a, a conser a, 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 an online conspiracy group. They don't think they need the local church. They don't think they need to read the Bible. Maybe they watch some distant megachurch on TV occasionally. 
but they're just as likely to go out muddying on Sunday. Sound like someone you know? Sound like you, maybe? Then ask yourself this. What is the good news of Jesus Christ for that person? What is the point of being a Christian? What is the point of being part of the church of Jesus Christ? What is the the deep-felt need in that person that the body of Jesus Christ, the church, could be for them? And if it's hard to come up with answers, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. These are tough questions, but they are essential questions to ask ourselves because we live in a post-Christian culture right here in northern Michigan. Less than 10% of people are regular attenders of a church in our area. Uh, The signs are everywhere. People don't see the point of being part of the body of Jesus Christ, of following Jesus, because the marketplace has stolen Christianity. And suddenly it's just another thing on the shelf, another option, another way to get what you want. What we need is Jesus, pure and simple. Because Jesus comes in and he clears that religious market. Now the Jewish leaders, they aren't buying it. They don't like what he's doing. They demand proof. They want to know, what is the sign you can show us that shows your authority to do this thing? They want a sign? Well, well, Jesus has just given them a sign. He has cleared out the temple. That is the sign. And what that sign is is this dramatic action that points to God's kingdom. What more can they want? Uh, And uh, John is making a a clever play on words here because a sign can mean two things. It can mean a a symbol that points to something else, or it can also mean a symbol that proves one's authority. What they really want is proof of his authority to clear out the temple. Is he doing this by Herod's authority or by someone else's? And Jesus, he replies with this typically confusing statement of Jesus. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's saying, in effect, I am doing this by my own authority. I myself am the sign. Of course, they don't get it. See, this this temple, Herod's temple, was built over this 46-year period. And you are going to raise it up in three days, they ask? Herod took this small temple that had been rebuilt after the Assyrian exile when the people came back, and, and Herod doubled it in size. And he started the project about 20 years before Jesus was born. And it had only been finished maybe a few years before Jesus shows up in the, in the marketplace. Uh, we know, in fact, from church historian Josephus that there were still finishing touches being put on the temple in A.D. 70, in the year 70, uh, when it was destroyed by the Romans. And the writer of John knows this because John is writing probably right after the destruction of the temple in the year 70, long after Jesus' death. And everyone at that time, Jews and Christians alike, are trying to make sense of the destruction of the temple. Like, without it, where do we gather for worship? Without it, uh, how do we uh, worship as a people? What does our worship point to? And John gives them an answer. He says, It's Jesus' body. Now, of course, that didn't make sense to them at the time when they heard it. Probably no one understood what Jesus was trying to do. He is making a sign, yes, and he's proving his own authority, yes, but the sign is his own body. And one one scholar, Craig Kester, asks, what is the point of the temple? What is the point of the temple? As in, what could you do at the temple that you couldn't do anywhere else? 
Well, Jews at that time could study Scripture in a synagogue. They could gather for prayer. They could find faithful community there. But it was at the temple, and only at the temple, that you could do sacrifices. The temple was the one place where God's people gathered for sacrifice. The temple was that one place where God's name dwells. So what do you do then when the temple is destroyed, when it's gone? Well, uh, Jesus is the one. You go to Jesus, and Craig Kester says, Jesus is the person in whom God's name dwells. Jesus is the one who is who was with God, who was God, who in the beginning was with God and who now dwells among us. Jesus, just like the temple, he says, Jesus is the place where sacrifice happens, where atonement happens, where at-one-ment happens. In Jesus, we are made one with God. How does that happen? Not by offering sacrifices continually. No, Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice. Uh, Jesus is the one who John calls the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice and he gives his body. And John uh, Kester points out that this is the new divine marketplace economy. This is not the marketplace of the world where you get what you pay for and everyone tries to get the best deal. No, God's market is different. God's market is about self-giving love. How much did Jesus give? Everything. He gave everything. And in our modern religious marketplace, all we can do is point to Jesus. All we can say is, look at him. Come and see Christ crucified, died, risen, and, re- and ascended. Jesus is the center of our worship. Believe in him, and that is what people need to hear. They may not want to hear it. They may think their desires are met by, uh, by other products, by politics or adventure or self-improvement. But none of those false gods, not one, of, not one of those idols will ever meet their deep felt need. We point to Jesus and we say, believe in him. And that's what the disciples did. When they remembered Jesus' signs, then they went to scripture and they saw what Jesus had done and what Jesus said and how it all fit together. And they believed. So what more can we do in our time and place where we find ourselves suddenly missionaries in our own culture? The the marketplace has changed things so quickly, so strangely, so surprisingly. And like the early Christians, we're trying to make sense of a world without the temple. And we find ourselves sharing the gospel with people who think they're already Christians but really don't know Jesus. And what do we say? We say, look to Jesus. Go to the Word, the living Word, the Word made flesh, uh, Christ among us, the body of Christ given for you. Uh, That is why we gather as the church, because uh, the church is Christ's body made flesh, and, and we proclaim Christ, and we listen to Christ, and we follow Christ in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus Christ, you who are the the living word who animates and moves our being, we who call on your name, we need you. We need you to enliven us and point us in the right direction toward your body, the temple of worship, and toward your body, the people of Jesus Christ, that we may point others to you. And for those of us here, hearing now online or here, who may not know Jesus Christ in that way, 
speak by your spirit and touch them and call them to follow Jesus Christ, to know him, to go to the word, to meet Jesus, and to follow him. We trust that you are working good in our midst as we seek to be your sent people in the world, called out to be one and sent forth to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ that all may know who he is and what he has done. For it is in him that we find oneness with you. In him we can worship. In him we can be made whole and pure for he gave himself for us a living sacrifice, once and for all, so we never again have to take an animal to the temple, but can always depend on our solid rock, Jesus Christ. For it is in him we are found. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.